0: The mission of God's sending. That's what brings us to this, this last week of More Than a Church. You, you see the asterisks on the wall. We've been talking for s- several weeks about what it means to be more than a church. How can you be more than a church? But it's our desire, uh, our vision to see ourselves as more than a, a gathering of, of people on a Sunday morning in a, in a building. Or what, what I called it last week, a gathering of largely bored adults. We don't want to be that. We want to be more than a church. And so we, we've talked about nine things over the last few weeks of what it looks like to be more than the typical American or Western culturized church. That it would incorporate things, being a church of courage, a church of compassion, generosity, of the generations, a church that is ascending or a missional church, which we'll expand upon today as a continuation of last week, a church uh, building leaders, a church that serves, it's creative, it prays and works and doesn't see one of those as an individual task, but sees them together. And so to be a missional church, church or a a missional organization, what does that mean? It means we enter into the story of God and his work of redeeming all of mankind and truly the missional work of God didn't start with the story of Christ, although that is the climax. The video demonstrated a lot of what the theology is of the mission of God really started in creation, revealing himself in a very personal way. To mankind. And then through the redemption story begins with Abraham and so forth. And when we talk about being a missional church, it's not that we, it's different from being a missional church, it's different than being a church that has missionaries or has a missions program or a missions committee, though we have a missions committee. It's more than a church that has a mission or a mission statement. This well-groomed idea, thought, or phrase that we post that inspires, it's great, and those are good things. But to be a missional church means that we enter into the mission of God, the great commission. And that doing this, not just as an organization, but doing this as a group of individuals, individually on mission and collectively on mission, carrying forth the story of God, the gospel. And truly it is the great commission that is simply an extension of God's mission. As Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, he gives them the great commission. Again, an extension of of his overall mission in sending Christ. And the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the sending of God through the person of Jesus, then is extended, expanded, and invested into the believers, the followers. In Matthew chapter 28, if you have your scripture, it's also on Version. If you use that, you can follow us on the live portion of that. This is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 19. Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I find it interesting that the therefore is position before the go, and he's saying, All authority all power and authority have been given to me on heaven in heaven and earth, on earth. And he's saying to his disciples, Because I hold all power and authority, I am now granting that to you, and by my authority you carry the mission with you, and you stand on the authority of who I am, and the power that I have I now bestow upon you. We see that in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter 2, the bestowing of the power is to accomplish the mission. Nothing more, nothing less. And here Jesus says to them, go and make disciples. Preach to the nations, make disciples. Kind of a two-pronged idea there, that we would, in the process of preaching not simply throw forth an idea of who Jesus is, but create followers of Jesus. Many times I, I hear preachers or people talk about the word "go." That becomes the focus of the idea of the Great Commission. And it's good. And I think there's a great amount of preaching that could be done on simply that word. But in this context, it's not a go in terms of a vacation, a destination. Although I think in Christendom, that's oftentimes what we see or what we hear is that the going is by a certain few to places somewhere and usually someplace somewhere else. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples is really, in the Greek, rather an assumption. So it could read, therefore, while you are going about your business, and really the business of God, but while you are going, while you are living your life, whatever context or circumstances you happen to find yourself in, you are on mission, you are going. And since you are going, preach the gospel, and make disciples. You are all on mission. But oftentimes we see the great commission as somewhere else. That some others do. And certainly I can play a part in that if I go overseas. Or I, and that's part of it. But it's not the entirety of it. The story, the gospel of Jesus is carried forth in each one of us on mission each day, wherever God has you. We've tried to give this idea to our students. Because oftentimes, when we're talking about God's calling, God's purpose in our life, what is God's will, when we ask ourselves, oftentimes it's in view of career and things that will happen after I graduate high school and graduate college, because then you'll be prepared to do God's will, And certainly, we shortchange ourselves and shortchange the generations to come if we continue to say your life is best suited if you fulfill God's purpose after you graduate college. We tell students you're on mission now. Where you are at, wherever that might be in school, your part time job. In the mundane things of life, certainly it is God who can receive the most glory from things that seem mundane, and I think certainly it is that he does receive the most glory in the things that you are currently doing, not just things that you foresee in a time in the distant future. You are all on mission. If you are a follower of Christ, you are on mission. You are on the mission of God through the Great Commission. I want to dive into the scripture, I think, this morning that helps us understand the mission that we're on. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17, is a a short story we find about one of the miracles that Jesus performs. And if you read through the book of Luke, especially in these chapters surrounding uh, chapter 5, you'll see that Luke makes it a point to emphasize the miracle and the power of Jesus, And prior to this, he's done a number of healings in in Luke's recording uh, of the gospel. In Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17, it says this, One day while Jesus was preaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, "'Friends, a friend, your sins are forgiven.'" The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to think to themselves, "'Who is this fella who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone?' Jesus knew what they were thinking. Oh, snap. That's like our worst fear, right? That Jesus knows what we're thinking or your grandma knows what you're thinking. That was my big fear when I was a kid that grandma knew not only was I thinking but all the bad things I was doing and God had told her. Well, Jesus knows what they're thinking and he says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts Which is easier to say, your sins are are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, referring to himself basically as the Messiah, has authority on earth to forgive sins, dot, dot, dot. That's what it says in my Bible. So he said to the paralyzed man, I'll tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Can we pray this morning? Father, would you illuminate your scriptures to our heart and to our minds and sink it deep into our character. And that which is of me, would go in one ear and out the other, but that which is of you would sink deeply into us, that we might reflect you and live your mission. It's in the name of Jesus I ask. Amen. If we're to be more than a church, we must live on mission as a church and as individuals. And I see five players in this story. Five players in this story, and the first one is Jesus. He's the central character. He's the central character of the gospel, of all the gospels. He's the central character of the New Testament. He's the central figure foreshadowed in the Old Testament. He's the central figure in the story, period. In the grand story of history, he's the center. Everything stems from him. Could it be said of your story that Jesus is the center Or is Jesus just a chapter? He's just kind of a figure that kind of fits in to the plot you're writing. Or is God the writer of your story and Jesus the main character? That's the question, isn't it? Who's the central figure of your story? You or Jesus? If you're on mission, it's all about him. And you let him write the story. And for some of you, you've never let Jesus into your story. Today might be your day, and your stories today become one story, his story. But Jesus is the central figure of this story, to whom these four men are bringing their friend. But let's look at the two groups of people, two other players in the story who prevent that man from getting there. First, Jesus mentions, or first, Luke mentions the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the people who... Over 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament, these were the guys that developed a system to help them find the Messiah and basically build a fence around the law to help people keep the law. They were the rule keepers. They were going to help people follow the rules until the Messiah came. And they were there sitting, at, listening to Jesus and as were the religious, other religious leaders. Their job, as they saw it, was to judge. Help people follow the rules and judge them when they don't. And f- for sure their job was to, te- was to determine who the Messiah was. After all, it was he whom they had been waiting for all these years. These are the people Peter describes in his writings in 1 Peter that he says, these are the type of people who have a form of godliness, But they deny the very power of God. They have a form of godliness. Outwardly, they look good. They dress right. They they say all the right things. They act right when everybody's looking. But they deny the very power of God that's supposed to be, we're supposed to have when we live in relationship with Christ. Jesus walks in on the scene here and he says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. What? Hold the phone. Shut the front door. This man's claiming to forgive sins. Who alone has the authority to forgive sins? These religious leaders wondered. The only entity that can forgive sins is not human, it's God. Only God has that authority. He alone can forgive sins. But here's Jesus forgiving the man's sin. And you can see this theme throughout the Gospels of this question about sin and who can forgive sins and what day can you do it on and all these things. In John chapter 9, the disciples asked Jesus about a a man born blind. And they asked him this question. They said, Jesus, who sinned, this man Or his parents? Jesus, totally bewildered, fuddled with his words as he grasped the two options that he was given, trying to sum up an answer. Jesus didn't mess around. He said, neither. (laughs) It's like those questions you ask people that don't really have a correct answer. So, have you stopped beating your wife? No, yes. I don't know. There's no answer because the options they give him weren't correct. And Jesus says, neither, but so that the name of God would be lifted high, that glory might be brought to God today. That kind of messes with your theology a little bit, doesn't it? Did God cause the man to be blind? Jesus, did God blind this guy just so you could do this right now? No, we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. We find ourselves in circumstances that we can't explain. Was the man blind because of his parents or because of his sin? Or is it simply that the scripture came true that day when it said that what the devil intended for evil, God can use for good and will. And in that moment, the blind man can see. And the Pharisees, seeing the blind man, are like, This is that blind beggar that used to sit over here, and he's trying to convince. The blind beggar is being asked, are you this guy? And he is saying, yes, 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 I'm that guy. In fact, in John 9, 9, in case you're wondering if it's scriptural, it is. The dude says, I'm the man. Look it up. It says it right there. The guy says, I am the man. Speaking of his testimony of being healed. And the Pharisees didn't believe him and said, you know what? You're a sinner, and you're steeped in sin, and your parents were steeped in sin. For them, they still hadn't made the connection. Jesus had not only authority, but he also had the power. And in this moment, he goes straight for the authority, and he says, I'm going to forgive sins. And then he backed it up by demonstrating his power and healing the man (sighs) blows their mind because he's backing up what he's saying. Truly, he is the Son of God. Because he just demonstrated not only his authority to forgive sins, but his power to bring healing both physically and spiritually. Jesus started where he needed to. Notice that. Jesus forgives his sins before he ever deals with his physical condition. Sin is the issue. Sin is always the issue. Look at the context even within just this one chapter. Peter Jesus goes to Peter's home and heals his mother. And Peter steps back and go, says, Whoa, Lord, get away from me. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I, I'm not worthy to be around you. There's this sin issue. Then he heals the paralyzed man, forgiving his sins. In the very next story, Jesus goes to Levi's house. Levi is a sinner, a tax collector. Shunned by the Jews. And all of the religious leaders are saying, he's hanging out with sinners. And Jesus is like, you're starting to see a pattern here. You're starting to see the pattern. And these two players, the religious leaders and the crowd. Now, the crowd is made up of the religious leaders and Pharisees and probably other people. These other people were probably hanging around Jesus because he was doing a lot of miracles He was doing things that were amazing. And a lot of people like to hang around Jesus because he does fun things. These people hung around because of the show, the benefits, right? Isn't that kind of what Christianity promises? If you hang around Jesus long enough, benefits will just come your way. Jesus never actually promises benefits in the way that we see them. But this was part of the crowd. And if you read the stories of Jesus, he's always followed by crowds because they want things from him. They want him to do something for them. They want to be entertained, even. And so the crowd, along with the religious people, are keeping this paralyzed man from being brought to Jesus. Church, could it be said of us? Are we part of the crowd? Are we part of the religious group? Are we part of those two players in a story that keep people from seeing who Jesus is? We're the rule followers, we're judging people. Was that person born that way or is it their sin or is it the sin of their parents? We're so busy in that role that we've taken from God as our own. Are we part of the crowd who just kind of surrounds Jesus? We come to church because at some point maybe God will just kind of sneeze at me and I'll get something from him. But in Luke chapter 6, we see that Jesus kind of draws a line in the sand with those crowds that are following him. I mean, he's feeding them. And he's doing miracles. I mean, if you could get free food and miracles, I mean, that's pretty awesome. That's the best social program ever. And finally, he says, look, if anyone, anybody wants to be a follower, really come after me, you're all invited. But he says, if you're going to do that, Anyone means everyone. But he says, if you're going to do that, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And a lot of them were like, what? No free food? What? And as Jesus began to raise the stakes and help people understand what it meant to be a true follower, he's saying things like, if you're going to follow me, you're not going to have a home? Let the dead bury their dead? Jesus, you're so insensitive. He's saying... You need to, you're going to eat my body and drink of my blood referring to his death and the symbolism of communion he had the conversation we like to call the DTR define the relationship you ever had that relationship with a significant other you ever guys you ever have a girl say to you so um, what are we <laughs> right She's asking you to define the relationship. She wants to know where this is going. Is it going to lead to a ring or not? And Jesus basically says to people, hey, define the relationship for me. Oh, hey, Jesus, you know, we're just friends. Oh, he used the F word. Oh, every guy's nightmare. I just want to be friends. Sorry, honey, we can't just be friends. And Jesus says that to his followers. Look, we can't just be friends. You can't just hang around for the stuff. Being a follower is going to be so much more. And it says many left when he raised that challenge, that many stopped following him for those very things he said it would, it would cost them. Church, are we people who keep people from Christ because we're part of the crowd, part of the religious folk, because there's other players in the story, and those are the friends, the four friends who faithfully bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. And can you see in them a, a persistence, a persistence of heart to do whatever it took to get this man to Jesus? They roll up on scene, and there's just a crowd of people, and there's not a seat in the house, and they got their buddy here, and he needs the miracles that they've been seeing and hearing about. Did they arrive and go, Oh, it's all filled up. There's no seats. Let's, let's roll. Let's out. We're out. No, oh, the house was filled, so they decided they'd go through the drive through Okay, it's a little stretch, but bear with me. The house was built in those days, probably was large and open at the bottom, which would explain the crowd, and would have stairs. On the outside, to the roof, that the roof that they use for all sorts of, of activities. And so these guys take their buddy up the stairs, and they punch a hole in the ceiling. It's a drive through They lower him in. They didn't give up. They were going to bring this guy to Jesus no matter what. And can you imagine the physical exertion of dragging their buddy up the stairs, and then digging a hole through the ceiling to lower him down. Those of you who maybe have uh, served in our armed forces in your training, you had to learn how to evacuate somebody who was injured or maybe you're an EMT or have worked in the medical field and you've had to carry somebody. It's tough work. It's tough work. If you've ever shot a deer before you knew I was gonna I shot a deer yesterday and I was gonna work it into the sermon no matter what you were gonna know I asked people today do I look like more of a man your, your pastor is now a man he shot his first deer I just want to say that do I look different <laughs> some of you now hate me um, It's for a good cause I had to drag that thing out of the valley yesterday. It was, yeah. Did you say tasty? Is that what you said? You're tasty, yeah, I know, I understand. Dragging that thing, 150 pounds of dead weight, up a hill, over a mile, seven miles, in the snow. <laughs> it was, there was physical exertion. Dragging people. Can you imagine dragging your friend to Jesus? And they carried him. There was physical exertion on their part to get him to Jesus. And they get up to the roof, and imagine they set him down. And then the work continues. Now they've got to dig a hole through the ceiling. They've got to tear that roof apart. So there's physical exertion, and there's this sort of emotional part to it where they're saying to themselves, is it worth it? What are people going to think? They didn't care. They were going to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. They were bringing him to Jesus one way or another. And this really was an exercise of faith. What they had seen and what they had heard, they were sure could benefit their friend. They wanted to get their friends to Jesus. You could say these four men were on mission. And they were filled with compassion, demonstrated through their passionate persistence to do what they had set out to do. And they brought him to Jesus. They brought him to Jesus. Isn't that the mission that the church is on, is to bring people to Jesus? Jesus? And there's that final player in the story, the paralyzed man. Why was he paralyzed? Was it his sin? Was it his parents' sin? Was he born that way? We're not told. But it's inconsequential. Because in that moment he's lowered down through the ceiling, Jesus sees him both physically and spiritually and sees his greatest need. What is his greatest need? From the outside, it looks like his paralysis, physical paralysis. But Jesus sees his spiritual paralysis and says, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are forgiven. And in this moment, the paralyzed man experiences a freedom he's never known. And he's still paralyzed. His story became part of the great story, the gospel story. We're not even told the names of the four, man, four men or the paralyzed man, are we? But they play a huge part in the demonstration of God's miracle working power through Jesus in the gospels, in the grand story. I would love to be an unnamed character in the Bible. If I could just play the, an extra, that's Okay and here these four men on mission play an integral role in the proclamation of the story of God the missio Dei the mission of God through four anonymous men and their friend this is the gospel story it's his story it's my story it's your story tim birdwell says it this way the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to live a life without sin, to die to pay for my sin, and to rise to defeat sin. You might wonder why churches and pastors always talk about sin. It's because sin disrupts all that God created to be good. You see, in the beginning, God created man and woman in function in a ho- to function in a holy relationship with their creator. But it didn't take long for this relationship to be fractured. It was fractured because people decided their plan was better than God's plan. And that's the root of sin, that we know better than God. We may not say it out loud, Tim Birdwell writes, but we all believe it at some level. Why do you think a child's favorite word is no? It is ingrained in all of us to rebel, and and this rebellion separates us from a holy God. But God does not leave us in our sin. He pursues us through the person and work Through Jesus, his son Jesus. You see, Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and your sin, providing us the opportunity to be forgiven. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose to conquer sin. He's alive today, functioning as our mediator and advocate before God the Father. That's where the good news comes in. When we believe in Jesus and all that he accomplished on our behalf, we are restored to a holy and loving relationship with our Creator. That's the story. That's the grand story, the gospel story, the missio dei, the sending of God, the mission of God. And we can be part of that story or we can continue to write our own story. We can be on mission or we can do our own thing. It really is up to us. And those five players in that story, which one are you? Well, perhaps you're several of them, but I know one that you are not. You're not Jesus, newsflash. You're not Jesus, but you can bring people to him. Truly, that is the mission of God. Truly, those who proclaim to be followers, that is the commission you've been given, that we've been given, being missional means becoming part of God's grand story and his mission to redeem mankind. No matter where you are, how old you are, or where you live, go into all the world. The Great Commission is yours. It's mine. It means we live with mission. And we will be a sending missional church. We will send young people and old people all around this world on mission. And we also send young people and old people all around this community to schools, to hospitals, to businesses on mission to bring people to Jesus. Think for a moment. Who are you bringing to Jesus? Perhaps several names pop into your head all at once without any thought. Or perhaps you're sitting here thinking and thinking and thinking. Who are you bringing to Jesus? Who are you fishing for? If disciples truly are fisher of men, as the Gospels say, who are you fishing for? Are you making disciples? Our goal is to bring people to Jesus. He's the central figure in the story. I want to close with this. One of my favorite theologians, Charles Spurgeon, says this. If you love Jesus Christ, my brothers and sisters, you will be willing to make sacrifices for his cause. I wish this spirit were abroad throughout all the church, that Christ really was really precious to the saints, so that they consecrated themselves and their substance to him. We want personal consecration. I have heard that word pronounced purse and all consecration. A most excellent pronunciation, certainly He who loves Jesus consecrates to him all that he has and feels it a delight that he may lay anything at the feet of him who laid down his life for us. Once more, he who really has this high estimate of Jesus will think much of him, and as the thoughts are sure to run over at the mouth, he will talk of him much. Do we so? If Jesus is so precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will You will be whispering it into into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. Of course, I do not mean by that that those who use the pen are silent. They are not. And those who help others to use the tongue or spread that which others have written are doing their part well. But that man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another About him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. You are either doing good or you are not good yourself. If thou knowest Christ, thou art as one that has found honey, thou wilt call others to taste of it. Thou art like the lepers who found the food which the Syrians had cast away. Thou wilt go to Samaria and tell the hungry crowd that thou hast found Jesus and art anxious that thou should find him too. Be wise in your generation and speak of him in fitting ways. And so in every place proclaim the fact that Jesus is most precious to your soul. We are not a church with missions or with a mission statement, but we are a church on mission. Are you on mission? The ending of that story of the paralyzed man ends by saying, and they all left thanking and praising God for what they had seen. It says they they left saying, we have seen wonderful things. People who are brought to Jesus and experience Jesus, they experience God. And hopefully when people see our lives and they walk away from an encounter with our church, whether it's in this building or you in your job as a person on mission, as a part of the church, they walk away saying, wow, and they are brought to praise God for it. This morning, there are those of you in this room who you're writing your own story. You're on your own mission. You've never invited Jesus to come into your life and you've never asked him to write your story. And today is your eternal moment. It's your eternal day to make that decision. And it's in this moment that you say, Jesus, I want you to write my story. I, I want to give my life to you, and I want you to come in and lead my life. In church, we say you get saved. You. It's all these wonderful parallels of what God's mission of, of rescue is. In the moment that you say, Jesus, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to follow you. And if that's you, and, and maybe it's a time to let God back into your story for some of you then church, in this sacred moment, would you simply close your eyes? And those of you who need to respond to Jesus this morning, would you raise your hand to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you. I want to pray with Pastor Jeremy, and I want to invite you into my life. We're not going to embarrass you. We're simply going to pray with you. I trust, since there's no hands, either you're not ready, which is okay. church we need to do a better job of bringing people to Jesus and that's okay too this morning whatever God is doing with you wherever you're at perhaps he's breathing inspiration he's bringing back that purpose as several people shared with me after first service that the Lord began to remind them of the mission he had put them on several years ago. And I'm so thankful for God's Holy Spirit to do exactly what he needs to do in the moment that he needs to do it. Church, I want to pray with you this morning that as we go from this place, we live on mission as people of the great grand story of Jesus. Father, thank you for each person that you've purposed in this room today by your divine hand. And by your hand, would you lead and guide us on mission, on the very mission you are writing this story of. And would you put it deep into the hearts of your people to bring people to Jesus in whatever way that looks like, not just bringing them to church, but bringing them to you through the way they live their life, the way they interact and with the very words that they use. Not that we're just good people who don't use words, but we're good people who speak with our mouth the very transformative power of Jesus. And so, Lord, pour out your blessings upon your people as they follow you this week and seek to make you known in all that they do. And it's in the very powerful name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Bless you. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you back here next week at C2.